This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we discuss espionage, with the revelations of Edward Snowden resonating through the region and the United Nations investigating a North Korean ship for arms smuggling through the Panama Canal, spying and black ops have our attention. Plus, we'll wade into the oil politics of Mexico. But first, Kurt Devine is away this week, and so Alexia Campbell is here. She has news about oil politics in Ecuador and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Ecuador's President Rafael Correa defended his decision to open the country's Yasuni Park region to oil drilling. Ecuador has asked international donors to pay the country $3.6 billion to keep the area pristine and undeveloped. But donors contributed less than 1% of what Ecuador demanded. Correa says the country has no choice but to use the resources to raise revenue. We are going to harness the energy of Yasuni with absolute environmental and social responsibility while minimizing any impacts and environmental compromises. Protesters led by indigenous leaders staged a series of protests against Correa's decision this week. The Yasuni region is home to two indigenous groups and the area is regarded as one of the most biodiverse in the world. More fallout from the case of Edward Snowden, the contractor who leaked the existence of the massive domestic and international spying programs of the NSA, the National Security Agency. That would be Glenn Greenwald of the British news organization, The Guardian. Police in London detained Greenwald's domestic partner, David Miranda, at Heathrow Airport and questioned him for nine hours. They also confiscated electronic files Miranda was carrying. Authorities said they were authorized under anti-terrorism statutes to detain Miranda. Miranda is a citizen of Brazil and the Brazilian government reacted strongly, condemning the detention. The U.S. government has denied any connection to the detention, although some in the U.S. have called for Greenwald to be punished for publishing some of Snowden's revelations. British authorities also oversaw the destruction of computers at The Guardian. The computers contained information about the NSA spying program revealed by Snowden. We'll have more on Snowden's case later in this program. The family of Cuban dissident Osvaldo Paya has petitioned Spanish courts to probe Paya's death. Paya died in a car crash in the summer of 2012. Cuban courts convicted Spanish politician Ángel Carromero of vehicular homicide in the case. Cuban authorities say Carromero was speeding while he drove the car that carried Paya and other dissidents. The car spun out of control on a dirt road and hit a tree. Carromero has a history of speeding and is being allowed to serve the bulk of his sentence in a Spanish prison. However, after he was transferred out of Cuba, Carromero changed his story. He said Cuban state security officials chased the car and forced it off the road. Carromero now claims Paya was not dead after the crash. Paya's family is asking that two Cuban military officials be held responsible in the death. FIFA, the international soccer organization, began selling tickets for next year's World Cup in Brazil. Ticket prices range from $15 to $1,000 for a seat at the final. FIFA reports that a million tickets were sold in the first seven hours through its website. For Latin Pulse, I'm Alexia Campbell. Thanks, Alexia. Spy programs from the U.S. are what has Latin America abuzz these days. This week, 
U.S. Army Private Bradley Manning, of WikiLeaks notoriety, was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Manning's revelations included many secret cables related to Latin America. And the U.S. State Department is still smarting after Secretary of State John Kerry was dressed down in Brazil. The Brazilians are upset about revelations of National Security Agency NSA spying in their country. More revelations by former intelligence contractor Edward Snowden. And as we just heard, the Brazilians are also upset with the British and how they have handled fallout from that Snowden case. We asked Fulton Armstrong for his analysis. Armstrong is a fellow with the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. And he's a former staffer of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We spoke to him via Skype from San Jose, Costa Rica. Part of, the, part of this is you have to stand back and look at the relationship between espionage and diplomacy over not just the years, the decades, or the, the centuries. And that is that some of the cliches uh, out there make it a little bit difficult to talk about. Uh, people like to say, for example, that gentlemen don't read each other's mail. Of course, they say that right after reading each other's mail. And they, the horror, the high dudgeon that is feigned when intelligence operations are compromised or discovered or, or come into the public in one way or another, um, then sort of contradict uh, the fact that almost everybody in the world has, has engaged in some form of espionage or other. Some have done it domestically a lot more than they've done it internationally. But let's not pretend that uh, what we're dealing with is a bunch of, of, uh, of virgins in a in this thing. It is the second oldest profession, as people jokingly say. It's always existed, and it's always been controversial. Let's go back to the Snowden affair itself. What are your feelings about that? Edward Snowden, is is he um, a traitor in, in what he's done, um, still in Russia, and, and will be for some time? What are your thoughts? I'm a traitor or whistleblower, um, these words are so loaded that Let's pull away from the words and and put what what this gentleman had done. He's a he's a kid, you know. So so I think that there's an element of youthful indiscretion in what he had done. When you go into government, whether it's in an intelligence agency or a policy agency or a regulatory agency, there is a certain tendency to believe that you're working for the American people. You're working for the highest ideals. Uh, you mentioned my work for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but I'd also worked at CIA. I'd worked at the White House for four years. I'd worked at State Department. I'd worked for Defense Department. And I was struck, my very my second government job, my first government job was in the U.S. House of Representatives, but my second government job was at CIA. And I remember distinctly going in for a polygraph and standing in the front entrance of CIA headquarters and looking on one wall at the stars of the men and women fallen in action, uh, whose names could not be made public. And on the opposing wall, that beautiful quote from the Gospel of St. John about seeking the truth, because the truth will set you free. And the idealism that that represents for a lot of us was inspiring, and it made us great at what we were doing, uh, which was understanding the world and getting information and doing good analysis and supporting policy and all these good things. But over time, we all do see certain behaviors that become quite questionable, and one has to decide how does one deal with it. Does one just keep one's head down and go with the flow? Does someone use internal mechanisms to raise questions? Does one go to the oversight committees on the Hill, 
which were supposed to have an open door with no political cost to people coming in with uh, with these sorts of whistleblower type issues, or does one go to the press? And I think that if somebody, what's what Snowden, my personal view, okay, I haven't read all the secret documents about PRISM, but I have read most of those that have come out, is that there were some serious issues going on that Snowden felt were wrong, that there was insufficient oversight by the Congress, by the courts, and that you had left in the hands of a, of a series of bureaucrats or people with policy ambitions during one administration or the other, uh, that there were things that had gone awry. And he should have, I think in hindsight, he, he may even regret, have worked internal mechanisms and raised his issues. And if that doesn't work, then you go one step beyond, and then you go one step beyond, you go one step beyond. Going to the press straight out, like Manning uh, and, and all of that, probably, well, first of all, it's, it is a crime. Uh, and second of all, it probably isn't even the most effective way to get an issue addressed uh, and all that. So I don't think he's a traitor, but I don't think he's just purely a whistleblower either. He's a, he's a kid who, who chose the, the most exaggerated route to achieving a goal that he felt in his heart. And many Americans do. And if you read the editorials around the country, many Americans feel, uh-oh, something is wrong at NSA. There's something wrong with our intelligence community. And, and so the legitimacy of his issue for a young guy may have made him feel that he could resort to, to such a drastic measure. Others, of course, should second guess that. Uh, let me just make some notes here. For those who are not following the Snowden affair closely, PRISM relates to the program that, that Snowden outed in the various newspaper reports. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you talked about that quote, the, the truth will set you free. Uh, Edward Snowden made his decision and, and whether he is free or not, he, he's in, in Russia right now and some people would, would, would question his freedom in that particular end. You, you also talked about the internal mechanisms. Um, many of the quotes from Snowden, why he took this particular course, talk about other examples of whistleblowers that he saw who tried to follow those mechanisms and, and, and were not successful. And in all of this discussion about NSA, CIA, etc., uh, even within the Latin American context, when the Brazilians hold Secretary of State Kerry's feet to the fire in this, it, it seems to me like we've gone back decades to the Cold War in the discussion of all this. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's an interesting observation. Look, the U.S.-Brazil relationship hasn't yet achieved the level of partnership that it that it should have been achieving. Part of that is part of that's a dynamic of the two personalities, the two national personalities. Part of it is a bureaucratic um, a bureaucratic issue as well. We have an ambassador who I think has done a, a very good job of representing Washington. Um, in Brasilia, but I think also we have a State Department that hasn't yet quite come around to how do we do partnership to a country who previously we had recognized as a potential global player, but now is a global player. And I think that that's a little bit difficult for our huge bureaucracy, uh, not just the Department of State, but for everybody to say, whoa, we have a new player, a new partner down there, and the advantages of collaboration and cooperation uh, and and tolerance of each other's rhetoric and understanding of each other's political needs vastly outweighs the the advantage of doing all that vastly outweighs the the the, the reasons not to do it 
And so I think that's part of it. Part of it also is that there are sensitivities. There was a document, I, I can't say whether it was authentic or not, but I, I read it and it certainly looked authentic, of basically Ambassador Shannon mm, sending out a congratulatory uh, a congratulatory message to our intelligence agencies for doing a fantastic job, essentially stealing the other side's secrets prior to various summits and stuff. And so it's that sort of perception of the United States as boastful of its intelligence capability, its ability to steal people's secrets, rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I bet you a dollar that that Mr. Shannon, Ambassador Shannon, or back then he was Assistant Secretary Shannon, didn't, um, I think, or no, maybe he was the ambassador already in Brazil at the time of that memo. Um, he probably didn't even draft that and maybe didn't give it more than 10 seconds and thought that it would never get out uh, and all. It was perfunctory. But for somebody who doesn't understand how the U.S. government works, that sort of thing can be quite offensive. When President Martinelli in Panama um, got involved in the in the uh, the the uh, seizure of this North Korean vessel with some rusty old um, Cuban hardware in it, then the 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 Cold War sounding rhetoric was was right behind his press release and all of that. We do the same thing. A lot of our policies in Latin America are still have a very strong Cold Warish sort of spin. The Cuba policy. You know, 50-something years of, of embargo. How many years are we? 60 years of embargo. And we, we still speak about it as, as if the Soviet Union were using it to, do, to aim nuclear missiles at the United States and, and, uh, and our obsession with regime change. Those sorts of things are all, um, are all out there. Some of the rhetoric that we used during the Chavez period. So, so it is natural then for people that want to influence Washington to themselves use this Cold War sort of stuff. Let me ask you, when it, when it comes to these, these issues, um, like this recent seizure of the North Korean freighter in the Panama Canal with, with various Cuban arms, doesn't that give argument to those who say that we should have robust espionage programs in the region? That's a good question. Um, is you know we can rationalize that, uh, and we could probably even speculate—pure speculation on my part, at least—that it was intelligence tippers of one kind or other. Although, frankly, tracking North Korean vessels is not that go through the Panama Canal uh, isn't isn't extremely difficult. Um, there are many times, by the way, where you have false tippers or false hunches where we do uh, inspections, we demand inspections, or we make allegations about contraband on vessels that are completely clean, including one time, in I remember in 1990, there was a famous case where there was a vessel, Panama flag vessel, that the Cubans had contracted to carry coal or something else like that over to Mexico. And someone had a tipper, probably through Coast Guard or something, that it was carrying drugs. And we insisted on a boarding, and then we insisted on hostile boarding, and we fired at the vessel and all that. And when it, by the time it got to Tampico, Mexico, and had been surveilled the entire time, it turned out that there was no narcotics on that vessel at all. So intelligence is, a, is not a perfect uh, art and all. But good intelligence maybe would give you tippers, but good diplomacy is what gives you good policy. 
and get you and get you um, into situations that aren't unnecessarily confrontational and unnecessarily embarrassing. I mean, I as far as I know, they found some ammunition and some old guns and a couple of old MIGs and some rusty old rockets or something like that, missile launchers or something on this vessel. But none of it meets the threshold of international crisis and UN mobilizations uh, and all that. It seemed to me have been a little bit opportunistic for people to do that. Well, thank you, Fulton Armstrong, a fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Join us today on Latin Pulse from San Jose, Costa Rica via Skype. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Rick. It's been fun. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto, is moving ahead with his campaign promise to reform Mexico's oil policy. And he's produced the most sweeping changes in more than 70 years. If the president gets his way, it will mean big changes for Mexico's oil monopoly called Pemex. Duncan Wood, the director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in D.C., joined us from his office by phone to explain the reforms. Here are excerpts from our conversation. The, the reforms are a, a, a major step forward. I mean, I think that they are they're groundbreaking in a number of ways. First of all, I mean, for the first time uh, since, the, uh, since 1960, uh, Pemex is going to be able to, uh, to enter into profit-sharing deals with, uh, with private and foreign companies um, for exploration and production. And that's something which really does break the mold that we've, uh, we've uh, become accustomed to in the Mexican hydrocarbon sector. Um, what's fascinating about this reform is that uh, uh, when the nationalization took place in 1938, when Lazaro Cardenas nationalized the oil industry, um, they changed the constitution in 1940 to actually allow Pemex to enter into these deals. And it was legally possible for Pemex to do that right up until 1960 when the constitution was changed again. And what this government has done, the government of Peñeta, uh, has done is that they've actually decided to revisit the exact wording of the 1940 constitutional amendment to bring that back into the constitution to make this possible once again. And uh, what's particularly fascinating is that it set off a, uh, a political firestorm where the left-wing party is saying this is not what Lazaro Cardenas, the president, intended. In fact, his son, Cuauhtémoc Cardenas, who is the eminence grise of... Uh, of, uh, of oil policy on the left in Mexico is saying, no, my father did not intend to do this at all. Um, he was opposed to, uh, to these kind of contracts. Um, and that's why eventually, you know, we got rid of them in, in, in the 1960s. But the government seems committed to move ahead with this and to, uh, to really put, uh, put Pemex and the Mexican oil industry into an entirely new mode for the 21st century. So this is the biggest change in oil policy in 70 years in Mexico? This is the biggest change in oil policy in, in, in Mexico in, 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 yeah, 75 years. It's extraordinary. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's significant in so many ways. I mean, it comes in the context of Mexico, um, you know, losing production. I mean, since, uh, since 2004, Mexico has lost over 800,000 barrels a day of production. 
um, Mexican oil reserves have been in steady decline, really only reaching a 100% replacement rate last year in 2012. Um, and Mexico facing a, a very uncertain future in the sense that uh, the oil that remains in, uh, in Mexican uh, territorial waters and onshore is very difficult to get to, and Pemex is having a tough time in replacing that lost production. Now, the, uh, the big opportunity exists, of course, in the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico, and Pemex as a company lacks both the technology and the know-how to really go into the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico successfully to extract the oil that's still left down there. And, uh, you know, another factor which is very, very important is that uh, doing so is very risky in terms of, you know, in financial terms because it's so expensive to do it. I mean, each well in deep waters costs at least $200 million. And if you drill down and you don't find anything, that's money that's just gone down the well, as it were. Um, and, uh, and now Pemex has the opportunity to share um, some of that risk with, uh, with firms from the private sector, uh, international companies, who will bring capital, uh, expertise, and the technology, and also will share the risk with Pemex. Venezuela has the largest reserves in the hemisphere. How important is Mexico to oil production in Latin America? Are they number two? Um, well, it's interesting, of course, because uh, you know you have the, you have in the in the hemisphere you have four big oil producers. I mean, you have Canada, of course, you have the United States, you have Venezuela, and you have Mexico. Now, Mexico's um, remaining oil reserves are estimated to be in the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico, somewhere between 40 and 60 billion barrels. Um, in the Chicontepec Reservoir on land, which is a complex geological field, somewhere between 50 and 60 billion barrels, but very difficult to get to. And in shale, something around 12 to 15 billion barrels um, are there. That puts Mexico's total somewhere around the 100 billion barrels mark. Um, if everything was able to be extracted. Now, that's important. That's important for Mexico in terms of increasing its production and guaranteeing a flow of foreign exchange into the economy and particularly to the government. It's important in terms of the Mexican economy because it will uh, inspire investment and bring new jobs and, uh, and the creation of new companies. Um, and for the hemisphere as a whole, it really does mark the, or it, or it cements the fact that uh, the center of power in the global uh, oil and gas industry has shifted from the Middle East to the Americas. Uh, you now look at North America in particular as, you know, some people have said it's the new Middle East. If Mexico gets its game together and really is able to begin to, uh, to build up its oil and gas industry, you have a very, very strong center here um, with the United States, Canada, and Mexico that really makes Venezuela seem much less important. I know Mexican politics is far more complex and nuanced than this question might show, but does this mean that if we look at just this issue, that this is an example of the PRI becoming the moderate party in Mexico? <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's a very good question. I mean, the, um, the PRI has, has often held um, sort of the, the big center in Mexico. I mean, remember that uh, it has been an umbrella party over the years. It's tried to, uh, to bring everybody in under its big tent, um, and uh, that's been very much its, uh, its approach. And at various points in history, it has departed from that, most notably when, you know, Carlos Salinas went out there and uh, negotiated the NAFTA and put, uh, put uh, the, co the country on a more neoliberal course for the future. But, uh, but the PRI likes to occupy the center ground. It likes to say that it is the, the party of the nation, the party of the people, 
um, and that it uh, that it can accommodate you know all the the diversity of views and opinion in Mexico, and that's very much the uh, the position is adopted under this government as well. Think about what's been happening in in the Congress. The uh, the government has adopted a negotiating mechanism called the Pacto por México or the Pact for Mexico, where it sits down with the other t- the, the other uh, two main parties, the PAN and the PRD, and it has negotiated a legislative agenda that everybody is on the same page with. And so we've got to the point right now where, you know, we're, we're nine months into this government and we have already had four major uh, reforms, an education reform, a labor reform, a telecoms reform, and a financial reform. And now we're in the pr- process of negotiating an energy reform. And after this, we'll move on to a fiscal reform. This is a very big legislative agenda, which has been very, very successful. Put it in comparison with what happened under the 12 years of pan rule from 2000 to 2012, and we've never seen anything. We haven't seen anything like it for the last uh, decade and a half. It's extraordinary. Thank you, Duncan Wood, the director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thanks, Rick. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. The hardline prohibitionist approach of the United States to drug control has few fans in Latin America. Uruguay, the smallest country in the region, is the first, however, to openly rebel. It will soon be the only nation in the world to legalize the cultivation, sale, and use of marijuana on a national scale. The Uruguay Initiative reflects a Latin American-wide disenchantment and frustration with the U.S. war on drugs. Although it is being scaled back within the U.S., the drug war remains a priority of U.S. policy in the region and, in the eyes of Latin Americans, bears a sizable share of the blame for surging crime and violence. The outcome in Uruguay is uncertain. Retreat may ultimately be necessary. Even Uruguayan President Jose Mujica calls legalization an experiment and acknowledges it may fail. Black markets will likely continue to reap profits from sales to juveniles and tourists and from people who want more than the government ration allows. By blunting cultural stigma and health concerns, legalization could well increase use, though limited research says this is unlikely. Uruguay's legal cannabis may end up in neighboring Brazil and Argentina, and criminals may turn to other illicit activities, such as extortion and robbery, or ratchet up sales of more risk-laden drugs. The Uruguay Initiative will hardly affect the hemisphere's drug trade. Uruguay is neither a producer nor a trafficking corridor. Compared to Brazil and the U.S., its drug market is almost non-existent. But Uruguay's courageous experiment will be watched closely and may start a trend. Already, many Latin American countries are decriminalizing marijuana or turning a blind eye to its use but few will be able to match the competency of Uruguay's institutions to manage legalization's complexities. It is the U.S. that should pay particular attention to the Uruguayan experiment. 
It will offer important lessons for U.S. drug strategies, both at home and abroad. Tiny Uruguay will have an impact, no doubt. But what happens in the U.S. will be especially critical to the future of hemispheric and global drug policy. California alone consumes some 500 tons of marijuana annually, compared to just 20 tons in all of Uruguay. But more relevant than market size, Washington will find it increasingly difficult to promote prohibition and strict enforcement in Latin America and elsewhere when its own citizens are pioneering a new course of toleration. Peter Hickam's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to his Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, Henteflow, and MusicaQ. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs of Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. And now, a programming note. Next week, Latin Pulse shifts its online time to Thursdays, starting August 29th. That will be our new day for the program to make its weekly debut. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Alexia Campbell and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Baptime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.